Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I agree with you that money is corrupted politics. Um, I think Citizens United was a terrible ruling. It made a bad situation worse. Um, I have a proposal that I think would help. Um, so certainly I'm for overturning Citizens United, but practically that's next to impossible because it would require uh, a supermajority, possibly even a constitutional amendment. Well, if you had a constitutional amendment that would uh, limit the amount of money that could be put in the campaigns and you could limit the amount of time people spend campaigning, it would make progress. Uh, but it's not likely to happen. In Singapore, for example, uh, the prime minister, when I talked to him last time, he said, he just campaigned. And how, how long was your campaign? Four days. The campaign for prime minister or the, the, the parliament was about four days. Maybe it was a week. Um, our campaigns are basically never ending, right? And the amount of money is extraordinary that's spent in it. And as you probably know from your own experience, where does most of the money go? A large part of it goes to media. And it's, a, it's an incredible, uh, you know, sinkhole advertising and media. Social media is where the money mostly goes now. Yeah, it's even more of a sinkhole when you think about the fact that billions are spent in opposition to each other, essentially canceling each other out. I mean, uh, if the RNC and the DNC were to just jointly look at each other and say, hey, I'll take a billion, you take a billion, and maybe we uh, fix some roads <laughs> or, or, or do something that the country would benefit from. So I don't, I don't know how much now in the, in the most world, most parts of the campaign world, you would know this as a candidate, people volunteer and people uh, work for very low wages. But in the media buying part and the advertising part of, part of campaigns, the people that actually buy it, they get a percentage of the revenue that you're spending. And that's an incredible incentive for people to get in, in the business of, of getting people like you to spend more money on advertising because they're getting a percentage of the revenue. If you were a patriotic billionaire, what would you do? This week, my interview with world-class investor and philanthropist, coiner of the term patriotic philanthropy, David Rubenstein. David also recently authored a book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream, that consists of interviews with thinkers and historians about America's history and what lies ahead. This week on Forward. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to the podcast world-class investor, philanthropist, now multiple-time best-selling author and interviewer, David Rubenstein. David, welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
So David, your latest book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream, uh, it's an amazing work. Um, there was a tone of concern in, in the book, which I would suggest is fairly appropriate. Uh, and one of the major challenges you describe in the book was a threat to our democracy. Uh, so we're talking right now on the anniversary of January 6th and the insurrection. How much of this book was driven by that concern? Well, there's no doubt that uh, the book was conceived of in the idea that our democracy is at peril to some extent. Uh, we have survived 250 years, but there's no guarantee we'll be doing this another 250 years unless we make some changes. As you know from being involved in, in politics uh, recently, uh, the country is bitterly divided. And I don't really think that one year after the events of January 6th, we're any closer to coming together in, 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 a, in a compatible way than we were a year ago. So you know everyone under the sun. Uh, this book consists largely of interviews with various historians and thinkers. I agree with you that not much has changed between last year and this year uh, in terms of us coming together. If you could wave a magic wand, like what, what would you dr be driving people to do? What I would try to do is to find some way to, um, uh, in, in effect, get people to work in a bipartisan chip kind of manner. When I worked in Capitol Hill in the late 1970s, and even in the White House for President Carter, uh, bipartisanship wasn't a, a curse word. Today, if you're seen as bipartisan, you're seen as either not appropriate to be in the Democratic Party or not appropriate to be in the Republican Party. It's very difficult to be bipartisan in, in Washington, D.C. these days. So I, I, it's a sad situation. I, I, you know, I think right now the country is so bitterly divided that if the 1964 Civil Rights Act was put on the floor of the Senate, I don't think it could pass today. Exactly word for word. Unfortunately, you're, you're probably right. Uh, I, I do want to, to uh, give some people a, a sense of your background. You and I met a couple of times. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember, because I wasn't famous then, uh, a fairly normal attendee, but we met at, out at uh, Aspen at the Ideas Festival a number of years ago, and then at Summit Series in Los Angeles. Uh, so I consider you to be one of the most patriotic uh, individuals in the country uh, based upon your, your personal commitments. Uh, you've actually coined something called patriotic philanthropy, where you personally restored the Washington Monument, uh, Thomas Jefferson's home, the Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, and and I, I feel like you did that really just out of a spirit of, of service, though it did make me think it's like, it, I feel like, um, you know, like you're doing things the government ought to be doing. I took uh, the steps that, to do things because I didn't think the government was going to do them or do them as quickly. So when the Washington Monument had its earthquake damage, the head of the Park Service told me he thought it might take two or three years to get the money out of Congress. So I decided to do it more quickly. Or things that were falling apart, like the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, these things are not getting the money they need. So I decided I would put up some money and help it get it done more quickly. The idea is to remind people the history and heritage of our country on the theory that if you know more about the history and heritage of our country, you'll be a more informed citizen and a more informed citizenry will make a better democracy. That's the theory. So you grew up uh, in a modest household, the son of a postal worker in Baltimore. Uh, you went to Duke and then to law school. You were an attorney and then you worked in the Carter administration. And Jimmy Carter has been in the news recently as someone who's deeply concerned about the progress of our democracy. You then left to co-found uh, Carlyle Group, which is one of the most prominent private equity firms uh, in the world. 
before private equity was a thing, you, you were kind of one of the, the pioneers um, in that. How close did you ever come to returning to full out-and-out public service uh, over the intervening years? <laughs> well, um, when I worked in the Carter White House, we got inflation to 15%, so there's been no demand for me to come back into public service. Um, secondly, as you know firsthand, going into public service today is a great sacrifice because not only is it a financial sacrifice, which is insignificant, relatively speaking, but it's a personal sacrifice and your reputation gets ruined. People come out of the woodwork to beat you up for things that seem insignificant. So if I said I'm going to go back into public service and wanted to be confirmed by the Senate, somebody will come out of the woodwork and say that I played spin the bottle too aggressively when I was in the sixth grade or something. So you just don't know what's going to happen today. And I just, rather than subject myself to ridiculous criticism, I'll just stay on the sidelines and let younger people and better people do the, the kind of public service work that I used to do. The fact that you become such an avid interviewer strikes me as fascinating. It's like the equivalent of my showing up to Bloomberg and Mike Bloomberg interviewing me. <laughs> um, so what, what prompted you to head in this direction? Because it, it's been something you've clearly invested a, a ton of time and energy into. Um, like many things in life, it's by serendipity. I suspect 10 years ago, you didn't think you would be a candidate for president of the United States or a candidate for mayor, but you happened to fall into it. Um, I happened to fall into it because Vernon Jordan asked me to be the head of the Economic Club of Washington, get speakers. I realized quickly the speakers were boring, and I decided to interview them and make it a little bit lighter, and people seemed to like it, and then they put it on Bloomberg TV and other things. So I do enjoy it because I like to ask people questions. Uh, obviously, you do too. If you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a podcast. And um, I try to take the best interviews, put them in book form, but I guess it stems back to my intellectual curiosity. Like you, anybody that's interested in, in doing these kind of podcasts must be curious about other things. So I am intellectually curious about lots of things, and that helps get it done. I also prepare a lot, as you obviously do as well. So it, it's fun. It's, I don't play golf. I don't drink alcohol. This is my relaxation. It, it is fun. I agree. I enjoy it, too. And in your case, you can talk to uh, the most renowned historians, uh, global figures, um, your book, The American Experiment, includes a, a number of fascinating interviews. Um, that there are a couple of challenges that I, I do want to home in on, maybe because they're what I'm most acutely <laughs> focused on myself. Um, so one is with an historian named Michael Beschloss, uh, who uh, recounts that what we're dealing with right now is not normal. Uh, there have been contested elections. There have been disputes. Um, but it hasn't risen anywhere near to the level of today, in part because uh, there were some norms and, and mores that both parties followed, uh, where, for example, in, in the book, they talk about when uh, Nixon lost, uh, that there were a, a number of Republicans who would say, yes, you know, like that this was a legitimate problem uh, on our leader's part, um, which is different from the tone of today. And he says that January 6th, we almost didn't make it, which I think is uh, something that you and I agree with. Uh, what are you seeing uh, in terms of actions on uh, the side of either one party or the other uh, to try and help us withstand the next challenge? Well, we didn't almost succeed uh, the way we did in January 6th because had, it, it had the situation changed a little bit, uh, the, the election would have gone to Donald Trump, and this is what I mean. Uh, we now, it's now public information 
that there was a plan to take it to the House of Representatives. If you could get the Senate not to certify and it would go to the House, the House had more Republican delegations than Democratic delegations, and you vote by delegation. So that would have produced a, uh, a Trump victory. Uh, we were lucky to dodge that bullet. When you think back on it, in your lifetime and my lifetime, we've lived through something similar, and that was the election of uh, 2000, when uh, George W. Bush won by maybe 534 votes in uh, Florida. Um, I suspect if Donald Trump had lost by 534 votes in Florida, he would not have done what Al Gore did, just give a nice concession speech and go about his way. Um, so it's amazing that Al Gore was willing to go away the way he did, uh, when you consider how close that election was, and really there, there may have well have been some fraud in some parts of Florida, certainly more than we saw in the, in the most recent election, in my view at least. Yeah, I, I agree. That was an act of uh, patriotism on Al Gore's part. Uh, I, I think a lot of people in his shoes would have uh, persisted, litigated, um, set the, the country into something of a protracted um, struggle. And certainly no one can imagine Donald Trump walking away with a, a vote margin that small. I mean, uh, even though he, in my view, lost very cleanly uh, this time, albeit by tens of thousands of votes uh, spread out over three states, um, the, the fear is that he's going to challenge the outcome this time um, again and come back. Um, my read is that he's the most likely Republican Party nominee um, and should be considered a serious threat to win re-election outright in 2024. Uh, would you agree with that as like a, a tentative forecast as we're having this conversation? Yeah, the day after the election uh, last year, I, I went on television and said on Squawk Box, I think he will run again. People laughed at me at the time. I do think he is considering running again. And if he thinks he can win, he will run again. And I, I wouldn't rule out his winning again. It went, you know, he, he won once, and I wouldn't rule out his winning again. Um, because right now, um, you know, the popularity that he has has not receded. It has actually, if anything, among his supporters, gotten stronger. And so in the last year, he has done a pretty good job of keeping himself alive. Even though he's not on Twitter, not on Facebook, he seems to have a following that's fairly intense. And as you know, in politics, the trick is getting your votes out. And he can probably get his votes out. So I would say if the election were held today, for example, I think he'd have a pretty good chance of winning. Yeah, I agree. And, and even if he were to come close, uh, he would proclaim victory and, and you'd wind up with protests and uh, civil unrest and, and perhaps violence uh, around the country, which is a scenario that I think the country should be uh, seriously preparing for. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So recently, Dave and I, and I don't know if you've been keeping up with anything I've been doing. It's totally cool if you have not. Uh, that I, I've come to the conclusion that one of the reasons why we're so concerned about Donald Trump uh, and the threat to democracy is that we have something of a fragile system in the form of a duopoly. Um, and you talk about the 13 DNA strands or genes for uh, American success. Uh, number one for you is democracy, which I'd agree with. Number two is voting, uh, I'd also agree with. Um, there are various anti-lowercase d democratic elements to our current system, where, for example, 83% of the congressional races in the country uh, are determined in the primary uh, because they've been gerrymandered as a safe seat, either Democratic or Republican. So you have a lot of Americans who are checked out of politics because it's sort of a foreordained conclusion which party is going to win. Uh, 10 to 15% of Americans are effectively electing, you know, 83% uh, of representatives going up to 90%. And so that there's nothing um, in the Constitution about the number of parties. Uh, the founding documents seem to suggest that our founders didn't like parties and that if they were to have parties, they would certainly want more than two. Um, I see you as someone who, uh, I associate you with the Democratic Party because you worked in the Carter administration. Do you think that one of the issues uh, that's making us more susceptible to uh, a rise of authoritarianism is the two-party system itself? I'm not sure I would agree with that, only for this reason. One, we have stability in this country, which is relatively uh, important virtue. Um, in the, the Weimar Republic, there were many different uh, uh, parties. And it's, you know, obviously what happened in, the, in, in Nazi Germany didn't come about because there were only two parties there. There were multiple parties there. Uh, the Israeli government has multiple parties, and it's hard to say that that's a well-run government because one vote here or there can de destabilize the entire government. So I'm not sure that the two-party system is as bad as that has been over the last couple years. Clearly, uh, it can be improved. But if you have the instability, is that going to be better off for the country? I don't know. And I think you do have more instability when you have more parties. Now, it's not to say that these are the only two parties. If you were to start, as I think you are, a, a third party, and it takes off, it could replace some of the other parties. Remember, we had the Whig Party. We had many other parties. It wasn't the Democratic and Republican Party at the beginning of our country, and they evolved over a period of time. But I think it's difficult to build a political party right now, uh, given the wealth that's required to do so. Oh, you, you're... A registered independent, it sounds like. Uh, I have joined you as a registered independent over the last three months. Uh, I have to say it's been a great three months. <laughs> I, I do think that now that I've, I've taken off my Democratic hat, I genuinely do see things uh, differently. And, and it turns out that self-identified independents do outnumber Democrats and Republicans very significantly. The, the number is around 44% independent maybe 28% Democrat and 23% Republican. Uh, so the challenge really is to have a party that independents uh, feel can compete and contend uh, and want to join. That is what I'm working on right now, 
uh, the, the forward party, not left or right, but forward. The, the issue is that the mechanics of our elections make a third party competing very, very difficult, uh, if not impossible, because they've been set up in a certain way where with a closed party primary, you need to be essentially a, a Republican or Democrat to compete in that primary to have a chance to win. So what we're advocating for are nonpartisan open primaries. So you can vote for anyone of any party combined with uh, ranked choice voting. So there's no spoiler effect uh, and people can express their preferences. Uh, you can vote for a third party first and then, you know, a major party uh, second and not worry about wasting your vote. I don't know if you spend any time looking at these reforms or if there, there are things that you think might help uh, alleviate the extremism, because at least uh, in practice, they should reward moderates and people that appeal to a, a broader part of the population. Well, look, there are lots of different ways you can experiment, but until you take money out of politics, I don't think you're going to make the big changes you really want. Right now, money is so important to the way the political system works that I, I think it's corrupting in any ways. I don't make political contributions because I just think it just is it's not appropriate for me to be doing that. But I, I just don't uh, think until you take money out of politics, any of these reforms are going to be able to eliminate the left or the right because so many people on the far left or the far right can raise money by appealing to people on the far left and the far right. And and what they, why are they appealing? They're appealing because they, they can raise money doing this. And, and money is very important. Why do members of Congress raise so much money? Why do you think that is? It's not because they need it. You just pointed out 83% of the people can get reelected in the House. Why do they need that much money? They want the money because, one, if you have a big pot of money, you can scare people from running against you. Two, you can give it to other members to get leadership positions. And three, you can keep the money after you leave office. I, I agree with you that you would need money uh, to have more political figures uh, accept or even embrace a, a third party. Uh, what I've been telling people, David, is that politicians run on three things, money, media, and votes. I, I just amazing to me how many members of Congress really are happy when they leave the place. And um, it's sad that they feel they have to keep raising all this money to stay in office. But it's, it's a system we have. It's not going to change. In your case, look, you can be a person who might change the country. You're a young person. So you have 20 or 30 years of vitality where you can go ahead and maybe make this difference. And then your question is, the question for you is, do you want to devote your life to this or do you want to do other things? Because if you spend all your time on this, you might not make a lot of progress. You just don't know. A lot of people have tried this before and have not gotten it very far. Oh, I know, David. Uh, you know, I, I was joking with someone where, where people talked about my third party uh, efforts uh, as somehow a path to, to glory or, or self-aggrandizement. And I laughed. I was like, this is the wilderness. <laughs> you know, it's not like, not like I'm unmindful of the fact that people who've gone down this road uh, have run into to massive challenges. Why don't you uh, consider, I, why, why don't you run for Congress? You, you could run for Congress and get elected. Why don't you do that? Uh, if I were a member of Congress today, I think I would feel very frustrated um, uh, because uh, the incentives are what you're describing. Um, I wouldn't be able to get that much done. Um, I would end up raising money to feather my own nest uh, and the system would continue to grind on in a way that would keep us polarized. Uh, the only way we can alleviate this uh, extreme polarization that we're seeing is to change the two-party dynamic, in my opinion. But if you go back over the last 50 years or so and look at third-party efforts to really build a third party, they haven't really gotten very far. Ralph Nader tried it. Um, John Anderson tried it. 
Uh, many other people have tried it, and it just it's very difficult to do. Bill Weld tried it. It's just very difficult to do. And, you know, you have to say you have a finite number of hours on the face of the Earth. What are you going to do with those finite hours? But it's, uh, I didn't have people, you know, shooting at me if I, you know, if I failed. In other words, right now, people, you make people, if I didn't, my firm didn't succeed, the world wasn't going to fall apart and people weren't going to criticize me all that much. You're going to have people targeting you all the time now because they're going to say you're trying to ruin the system or you're, you obviously need to have a thick skin if you're able to do this. Thicker than mine. I th thank you for noticing. <laughs>
uh, fix some roads <laughs> or, or, or do something that the country would benefit from. So I don't, I don't know how much now in the, in the most world, most parts of the campaign world, you would know this as a candidate, people volunteer and people uh, work for very low wages. But in the media buying part and the advertising part of, part of campaigns, the people that actually buy it, they get a percentage of the revenue that you're spending. And that's an incredible incentive for people to get in, in the business of, of getting people like you to spend more money on advertising because they're getting a percentage of the revenue. Oh, yeah. When I was running for president, David, as soon as we started raising serious money, the consultants came in uh, and said, hey, you need to buy TV ads uh, and we get this percent. And I looked at it and said, what a racket. Um, but did we end up spending those millions of dollars on those TV ads? Yes, we did. Uh, so uh, you're not wrong. Well, it happens because uh, they have a, an incentive because it's the only part of campaigns where people actually make a profit because they're getting a percentage of the revenue. It used to be, I, in the early days of politics, it used to be 10%. I think it's been squeezed down to 2 or 3% now or something like that. But still, if you put out more money, they get a bigger percentage. So that just fuels people to keep buying more and more ads. Yes. So on this, this crisis in democracy, it sounds like your main calls are to improve the climate of, of bipartisanship in Congress, which is very difficult, and right now it's getting worse. Yeah, it's very difficult. My view is I'm, I'm trying to spend time on education, educating people about civics and history. We, we're way behind there. You can't do everything. But one of the things I'm focused on is getting people to know more about our history, our civics, how our government works, and the theory that maybe that will lead to a more informed democracy. The other major challenge I wanted to talk to you about uh, is with the economy and capitalism. Carlisle invests around the world, so you have a sense about how America is faring relative to other countries. There was uh, a really interesting interview you had with an author named uh, Boo Srinivasan, who wrote about the history of capitalism in America over a 400-year period. Uh, you cite capitalism and entrepreneurship as one of the vital American strands of, of DNA, uh, which I, I happen to agree with. You've also probably seen the attitude towards capitalism uh, darken and sour over the last number of, of years here in America. Boo describes capitalism, and I love this description, as an operating system that requires adjustments, updates, patches, safeguards, and constant iteration to work properly. Um, I, I thought that was the most apt description of, of, of capitalism I'd seen in quite some time. In, in your view, how is our operating system doing? Well, if you're wealthy, it's doing extremely well. If you're educated, uh, you're doing probably reasonably well. If you're uneducated, you work with your hands, you are living paycheck to paycheck, um, you don't have childcare, you don't have access to, the, to internet, uh, you're not, it's not doing very well. So what's happened in, as a result of COVID is that the gap between the wealthy and the non-wealthy has gotten greater. And that gap is not likely to close anytime soon. So capitalism works well for people at the top. It works reasonably well for people in the middle. It's awful for people at the very bottom. Right now, those at the bottom, are, I think, are doing worse than they were two years ago. Yeah, so to the extent that he describes this set of adjustments, updates, patches, safeguards uh, uh, that capitalism requires, uh, do you have a few that you would like to see adopted? Well, I think capitalism right now, the way Western capitalism works is basically we've concluded we let entrepreneurs pretty much do what they want with modest regulation. And we, we think that businesses that are created are going to likely do better things for society than, than, than not having a, uh, 
uh, free entrepreneurial system. However, we have a reasonably good social net, not as good as Europe, not as good as some other countries. Our social net has failed in some places in this country. If you, as you know, the European system, which I'm not saying is perfect, they do have a big, bigger and better social net than we do for people at the bottom. And what we have in this problem, and you, you would recognize this to some extent as well, um, what we have in this system is a, uh, we have a belief in the American dream by and large. It turns out that many people now in this country born here, people who are of racial minorities, uh, particularly African Americans, don't believe in the American dream so much. They think the American dream is basically hogwash, and it's people who come from other countries. We have 47 million immigrants in this country. They believe in the American dream more, ironically, than people who are born here. And it's because the people at the very bottom are, are not doing well. If you go in the inner cities of any major city in the United States, you live in New York, you go in the, in the worst parts of New York City, what you see is hard to believe that this is a wealthy country. You see you know, people living in poverty, people, and look at the homelessness in New York or my city, Washington, D.C. It's a staggering amount of homelessness. It's hard to say that capitalism is working well, right? Yeah, I, I definitely have been in those neighborhoods and came away stunned uh, and shocked by uh, the circumstances that a lot of people are living in, particularly uh, people of color, uh, black and brown people in New York City. You and I, again, had met a couple of times, and I, and I would not fault you at all if you uh, don't recall it, because I, I was one of many. Uh, and then I made the national stage running for president as a Democratic candidate, uh, proposing universal basic income, which is actually an idea that you recognized, I'm sure, from the 60s and 70s, because it was more <laughs> it was more thoroughly uh, contemplated at that point. When you saw my presidential campaign, what was your reaction? Were you like, oh, good, this idea is back or like or was it a different reaction? Well, I would say uh, that idea has been around before. And in effect, we have it to some extent now because people at the bottom of the economic strata, they're not paying federal income taxes uh, and they're really not paying Social Security taxes that much or there's a rebate. But it's not enough. It's not adequate. I'm not saying it's enough. But I would say that um, giving people something in the way that you proposed it uh, raises the hackles that, that Nixon did. when he when, Look, Nixon proposed that. Patton yeah. Moynihan proposed it to Nixon and Nixon went along with it. Nixon uh, amazingly supported it for a while until he realized it was not something his constituency liked so much. I would say it's 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 an easy to criticize. You, it's easier to do it through the tax system than giving people grants. But um, I would say we, we have some of what you propose already. Um, and the Build Back Better legislation, if it ever passed as an initial form, would have done more of that. But trying to give people money in the appropriation sense and with more entitlements is much more difficult these days. Uh, yeah, the enhanced child tax credit uh, was in some ways uh, reminiscent uh, of the, the Moynihan-Nixon plan. Um, and 442 economists uh, have endorsed making it permanent, um, in part because it's, it's pulled several million kids out of poverty, which I, I suspect, are you a fan of the, the child tax credit? I imagine you are. Um, I, I think it's, it's good. It's not going to solve our problems. Uh, it's, it's fine. I, I do think that we should, though, do something that you, you may or may not be in favor of. Uh, when the Budget Act of 1974 was passed, it was passed in order to make sure that we actually kept our budget more or less in, in kind of balance to some extent, or at least we knew what we were spending. Uh, now the budget, the budget deficit at the time in the United States was under $500 billion. Now it's $29 trillion. 
So how do we have a budget act of 74 and go from 500 billion of debt to 29 trillion? Well, the answer is, among other things, a lot of budget games. And the most common one was pointed out in the Building Back Better uh, legislation. Right now, we have 10-year budgeting. Uh, no company runs with 10-year budgeting. So what we do is we, we pass legislation, and then we, we say we're going to get the cost of it back in years 8, 9, and 10, but it never actually comes back. And then so you just increase these deficits. So I wish we would uh, have more honest budgeting and, and just know what we're, we're, we're spending money on. But look, right now, the budget of the United States is really about $6.5 trillion. Ha almost half of that a year or so ago was borrowed. We're borrowing about a third of our budget every year. That's not sustainable. So something's got to give. And you can only do this in one way. You either default on your debt, which is not going to work. You have to increase taxes, which is not popular. You cut spending, which is not popular. You have, you have economic growth that's greater than it is, or you inflate your way out of it. And I'm afraid we're, we're heading in the inflating our way out of it problem. A solution, I should say. Uh, it, it seems like right now, uh, in my view, inflation is going to be uh, an issue uh, for the next number of months. There's going to be pressure on the Fed to raise rates. Um, if the Fed does raise rates, you'd imagine there'd be a significant market correction. Uh, like, how do you see the situation playing out? If there was an easy answer, I would have been in New Hampshire with you or in, in Iowa with you. Uh, there's no easy answer, obviously. Um, I think the, the most likely scenario is that we're going to increase taxes on wealthy people, but that is not enough wealthy people. You've got to increase tax on the middle class, and that's tough to do because the wealth is really in the middle class. And there aren't enough really health, very wealthy people to solve all your problems. Um, secondly, you're going to have inflate your way out of this problem to some extent. And third, you're going to basically see a devaluation of the dollar. Those seem to be the paths out, and none of them are good. Um, so uh, it's, too, it's too bad you weren't with me in Iowa and New Hampshire. That would have been fun, David. I don't think they had a lot of private equity people in the Democratic primaries. I have noticed that. But if you, if you stay in your current party, you wouldn't be able to be in the, in the uh, debates and so forth, right? So Ross Perot ran for president and got 19.3% of the vote in 92, a, a time that was probably more trusting um, and pro-institution than, than it is now. And, his, and he at one point briefly suspended his campaign. So if he hadn't done that, he probably would have uh, gone higher. Um, my friend Mark Cuban polled himself in 2020 um, just to see how he would do, um, had himself at 25%. Uh, independents right now are at 45 to 50%. 62% of Americans want to move on from the duopoly. If you had a credible third-party candidate and the field was, let's say, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, combined age 159 uh, about in 2024, I think a third-party candidate walks around with 15 to 20%. But let's suppose your premise is true. You would have to get somebody that I think Americans really think is a great hero, or an extraordinary person, uh, and maybe may you, but it, it needs to be somebody that I think is somebody really people would really admire for what he or she has already achieved. I agree. Uh, and one of my projects of, of this time is trying to identify who that candidate might be, uh, which is a, a really fun project. Uh, so in this history of capitalism that uh, uh, that Bhusri Navasan recounts, he talked about one of the most dramatic episodes being uh, Henry Ford's 
elevated salary for Model T manufacturing workers. Uh, where it made headline news, it was essentially double uh, the customary salary, uh, and it would enable a worker, the average worker, to be able to buy the Model T uh, based on three months of income. And, and so this was a game changer. Um, and I was trying to imagine what a modern day equivalent of that would be. Like it, it would be something like, I, I guess, like what is the, the Ford of today? Uh, maybe it's Amazon and maybe Amazon wakes up tomorrow, Jeff Bezos, they actually have the money to do this. So this would be a fascinating exercise. Uh, it would be like if they woke up tomorrow and said, hey, everyone gets paid 30 bucks an hour, like, <laughs> like twice the prevailing wage. Uh, now, I think most people look back fondly on the Model T manufacturing wage being higher. They, they see that as something of an emblem of the progression of capitalism, of American industry. Do you think that's right? Uh, and do you think that it's possible that something like that could happen today? I, don't, I, I feel like it couldn't. Um, but if it did happen, would it be desirable? Well, it would, maybe you could argue it have some inflationary impact. I wouldn't worry about that. If, if Amazon or Apple or other people said, look, we're going to make sure that all our employees get paid, uh, I don't know, $25 an hour or whatever, some higher than minimum wage is, uh, that might be beneficial. It would set a trend off for the country. It might be inflationary, so it's hard to know. Right now, it's hard to believe, though, but the minimum wage in the United States is still, what, $7.50 an hour. Yeah, even 15 is an effective doubling. In, in 15 was, but that was over four years uh, that, that going to 15, and that was the proposal. So it's amazing that the, the minimum wage is still so low uh, as it is. Um, I, I, I don't know whether there's an entrepreneur today who is willing to do the kind of things that Henry Ford did. Uh, I hope so, but there's a limited number of individuals who are able to do, it, to do that. You have this this global perspective, and this is something I was uh, I was eager to to ask you about, based upon something that also that um, that Bruce Navasan said. He was trying to compare the Chinese model of capitalism to the American model, and he said something that would make a lot of Americans, I think, fall out of their chair. He said the communists seem to be very good at capitalism, <laughs> and he talked about an example of thousand dollar drones that China is able to manufacture with ease. We've seen it now even with um, some of the drugs and testing where uh, a lot of that stuff is manufactured overseas in America. Um, and he says that the bulk of our economic policy is determined by the consumer market, which is a mistake and you should have some policy that's, uh, that's directed towards things other than low prices uh, and what consumers want. Um, you guys invest everywhere. Carlisle just tries to find great opportunities and, and firms. How optimistic are you about the American model of capitalism relative to, let's say, the Chinese? Okay, look, the American model of capitalism has obviously worked for a couple hundred years and done quite well. The Chinese model is different, and it's got some improvements over ours and has some deficiencies. Uh, there's a new book out by somebody you probably know, um, and uh, Ray Dalio, called The Changing World Order. And in it, he basically says that the Chinese model of capitalism probably will prevail over the next 50 years or so over the American model because China is a rising power and its form of capitalism probably will ultimately be uh, more successful than ours. That's, that's a short circuit way of saying what he said. But essentially, the American model is going down a bit because we borrowed too much money, we're not as hardworking maybe as we used to be, all the things you probably know about. And so I think the Chinese model shouldn't be dismissed by Americans as, as ridiculous. It wouldn't suit our, our freedom, our interest in freedom, 
but the Chinese model of communism or capitalism does have some benefits that has made their economy, you know, basically the biggest in the world. So given your uh, conversations with everyone under the sun uh, in our nation's capital, I probably should dig into your dinners with members of Congress um, more deeply because they sound fascinating. Uh, I feel like you started out um, your trilogy of books um, kind of uh, a bit more optimistic. <laughs> and then it seems like the concern level has risen. It could just be because of the order of the interviews as presented. Look, anybody that's an entrepreneur, and you've been an entrepreneur, by definition is somewhat optimistic. Because if you are pessimistic, you would just get in a hole, you wouldn't do anything. So by nature, I'm optimistic, but I'm also realistic that we have some challenges in this country. There are challenges that people of my economic background are not going to be suffering from as much as people who are, are lower in the economic totem pole. So um, it's not a perfect system. But I, you know, I'm now at an age, I'm much older than you, where I'm trying to get things done in my lifetime. And I'm not trying to do things that I think aren't going to get done in my lifetime. So I'm working on different things. And you, 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 your project is going to take 10, 20, 30 years to get maybe have an, a, a, a fruition. And you might be successful in 30 years. I don't have 30 years to give to something. So I, I'm trying to do different things. Well, uh, that's one thing I admire about you, uh, that you're trying to get it done quickly. Um, so if, if there is something that you would want our listeners uh, to dig into, to maybe uh, check out, volunteer, contribute, uh, like wh what are ways that people can get engaged? Try to do something to make your neighborhood, your city, your country, your, something better than it was before. Just don't, you don't have to be you know, solving all the problems of the world, or you don't have to be curing cancer. Just find something you can contribute to, and you'll feel better about yourself, and you'll probably live longer because you'll feel better about yourself. Secondly, read more about what's going on in the world, and read books. Books focus the brain better than internet, uh, you know, memos or something like that. Read books. Read more, um, and try to figure out how you can contribute to your society and therefore think what you can do to make the world a slightly better place in your 80 or 90 years on the surface of this earth because we're here a relatively short period of time. Uh, David, I, I love the fact that you're trying to get it done uh, in your lifetime. You have more resources than just about any of us. Uh, I hope you live a very long and, and fruitful life uh, and the rest of it. Uh, but when we do revisit you and your legacy, like what, what do you hope it, it is? Well, um, as you would probably know, uh, most people would say, if you, and you have children as well, you want to have children who are successful and are healthy and happy. So that's one of the great legacies. Uh, secondly, uh, you want to make people f feel that you've done something useful with your time on the face of the earth. And so that's another one. Uh, try to do something useful while you're here. Um, you know, you feel like you've done something useful by getting involved in campaigns. And it may be that you can change the whole political system if you're successful. I suspect it's going to take you 15 or 20 years before you realize whether you're making it or not. Well, I, I agree, but I'm actually pushing you to ask you, like, how are you going to measure your own progress? Because you have more in the way of resources. It sounds like you're investing in civics education. Is there like a, like a goal you've set for yourself? Well, my goals and my philanthropic goals are to start something that wouldn't otherwise get started, finish something that wouldn't otherwise get finished, um, do something that... Um, I'm intellectually interested in, so I'll stay involved in it, not just write a check. And fourth, uh, see some progress in my lifetime. 
And so I pick projects that do that. But the most important one of all is educating people. So most of my money goes to education and, and uh, scholarships. I mean, the things that we've talked about, patriotic philanthropy is 5% of my net, my, my net giving. 95% is in medical research and education. Well, that's going to be a phenomenal legacy, David. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Uh, okay. This book is a phenomenal achievement. The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. Uh, let's get people reading more books. Thank you. And next one, I'll have you in it, okay? I, that's a promise. Thank you, David. <laughs>